Hey, Greg. Hey, Andrew. It's October 24th, 2017. What are you into? Well, I finally um, made some progress on... Well, no, I'm into book three of the First Law trilogy. I may be a third of the way into Last Argument of Kings. I am really enjoying it. The plot has is now moving maybe too fast. (laughs) I know I complained last week about how um, Before They Are Hanged was maybe a little bit too slow, but I feel like this one dumps a bunch of big plot twists on you kind of early, and now I'm kind of like, oh, so what are we going to do now? (laughs) But I'm really enjoying it. I, um, I, I have spent and will spend a lot of time in the car over the next couple weeks as we try to find a place to live down in Maryland. So I'm going to have a lot of time to, to just plow through the rest of this audio book. But uh, uh, it's been that, and I've been you know tinkering with some Destiny 2, as, as you do. I, um, last month, I got super, super dumb and bought a custom PS4 controller. Um, that because, um, it has paddles on the back. So basically, um, so imagine if you will, a standard, uh, you know, console video game controller where you've got your two analog sticks and then all your face buttons. And the struggle is that in order to use the face buttons, you know, like the circle and square and triangle, you have to take your right thumb off the right thumb stick, which you're using to aim. Um, so certain controllers, the Xbox elite controller, which Microsoft will sell you do this, or you can buy certain aftermarket PlayStation controllers that have these paddles that mount to the back that essentially take the place of the face buttons. So you can hit them with like your, um, like your middle and ring fingers that normally would just be kind of sitting there behind the controller. So you can leave your thumbs on the stick the whole time. And thus, um, you're able to perform certain maneuvers, like say, you know, if you're trying to jump over somebody and, you know, shoot them as you jump, it's much easier because you don't have to take your thumbs off the stick. So I got that, which um, means I have to kind of relearn how to play these games. <laughs> yeah, that'd be tough after. Because I remember, um, this reminds me of, like, I had some friends in, like, late high school who were, like, I don't know, you maybe call, like, amateur competitive Halo players. You know, like, they compete in local tournaments. And, you know, this is back when, like, you know, Esports wasn't really a thing yet, and MLG was like the only thing that even existed and focused on that sort of thing. But they would hold their controller with, um, and this is, I guess, Xbox One or maybe even 360, but they would hold their controller with their, just trying to imagine this, you know, always good in a podcast to describe visual things, uh, where you take your pointer finger on your right hand and you put it on the buttons. Yeah, they're curling it over the face of the controller. This is called the claw. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> popular parlance. Uh, I tried it a little bit. It wasn't. It was a little. I think it's probably easier to learn than what you're gonna have to do because that's a whole different like setup. But I mean, I'll, all I have to say is peasant life. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got like 50 buttons right here ready to go. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I but. know. I know you and your you with your PC games. Uh, I know it's a. Uh, no, I know how that feel because like I got a new mouse and like maybe a year ago, and uh, it was unfortunate because you can't really tell with these things when you order them online. But there was a there's a button right under where my thumb like is comfortable to sit. Mm-hmm. So whenever I move my mouse around, I would click the button. So I had to like kind of train my thumb to be a little further back. And even just doing that was like took months. So yeah. doing what you're gonna do sounds sounds hard. I've got most of it. Um, uh, 
most of it in place. It's it's actually, and I, I, I am enjoying it. It is a lot more, it just feels a little bit more intuitive. Um, although there are certain, it's weird. Like there are certain things where it's just, it's more instinctive for me to pull my thumb off the stick and use the face buttons. So it's, I'm kind of doing both. It's weird. I don't know. But uh, so I've been, yeah, I've been playing Destiny 2 and uh, and trying out my new controller like a, like a crazy person. Gotcha. I had a question to go back first law for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your opinion of, and I'm blanking on her name, the the main character from the South? Uh, Pharaoh? Yeah, Pharaoh. So I guess my complaint about her is my complaint about many of the characters in First Law. Like, I look at Glockta, and Glockta is such a, like, brand new character. Like, um, he's so clearly defined, and he's not, he's not like any other character I've encountered anywhere else in genre fiction. And he's so much fun to read, and he feels so unique. And then there's other characters like Pharaoh, where it's like, oh, she's the tough, you know, she's the tough woman who, um, you know, like won't let anybody touch her and don't cross her. She's super duper competent, but also super duper withdrawn. And she's just kind of, and maybe this is a little spoiler, but then like she falls in love a little bit and that softens her up a little bit. And it's like, that character archetype is just very, I feel like it's like, oh, so Michelle Rodriguez would play her in the movie. <laughs> like, it's just like, that's, it's just so tropey and stereotypical. Um, I mean, at least so far, I mean, she still has some story left to go, but it's kind of disappointing that you can have some characters that are so like subtle and just that elevated realism, you know, like, uh, like Glockta is, is such a great example. Um, you know, they're just, they're interesting and realistic enough, but not to be almost cartoonish, but like still like just really, really fun to read. And then you get some characters who are just like, um, oh, it's, you know, I've seen this character a thousand times in a thousand or even Baez, who's like very kind of, uh, you know, we talked about last week, kind of an interesting twist on the wizard archetype um, with kind of a clearly drawn personality. And then Pharaoh's just kind of bleh. Yeah, she was probably in my in my opinion like one of the weaker parts of the books. Like she's fine, you know, she's fine at some points, but um and then you know, I do find the whole like her and Logan relationship like like just like them brutal and kind of gross, but um but yeah, so interesting. Uh I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about when it's over. Yeah. Um and uh you know, you'll have to I'm sure you're going to move on to something else. Uh, but sometime down the road, you should definitely read the standalones or at least read one called The Heroes because it's probably one of the best fantasy books I've ever read. Yeah. Uh, it's really good. So shall we get on to our topic of the night? Let's talk about the topic. Tonight, we are going to talk about fantasy again. It's It's been a while. I feel like it's been a while <laughs> since we like actually like dug into like some genre stuff. Yeah, it has been a while. I think we're doing a lot of like superheroes and a lot of news and stuff, but... Uh, so tonight we're going to talk about, we're going to try and answer a question. The question is why in most fantasy is, why is most fantasy fantasy set in the sort of standard faux medieval faux Europe setting? Yeah, this is one of those things where it's almost where the setting and the genre are almost kind of mixed together in the same way that sci-fi and outer space are almost like. So a lot of people see them as synonymous, and this is one of the reasons that Star Wars gets labeled as sci-fi, is because people are missing up, mixing up setting and genre. But 
I think when you see certain things, whether it's in a TV show, a video game, a, you know, a, a book, a movie, whatever you have, um, it's clearly delineated as a fantasy genre. And so they all kind of take place in that kind of medieval Europe setting that's maybe only one or two clicks removed away from Tolkien, right? Right, which is only one or two clicks removed from at least some people's view of the Middle Ages or perhaps early Renaissance. Right, but it's an idealized, it's also usually an idealized version of the Middle Ages where, you know, you don't have people, you know, dying from an infected cut on their foot or... Um, uh, or the, the, or the plague. <laughs> right, or, or most, you know, most characters uh, bathe or at least don't you don't read a lot about how much they smell like they haven't bathed in months um and also um pre-plumbing so how clean are they period right um so you know it, it's kind of this sanitized idealized version of medieval europe but i think we should clearly define what we're talking about here and maybe call out what are some of the common elements that kind of build up this kind of default fantasy setting um, so the list I kind of pulled together was it's, it's not just European, it's really what we would consider Western Europe and maybe even Northwestern Europe. So thinking England, France, Germany, um, if you start to go too far South, like Lord of the Rings doesn't take place in Italy, right? Mm. It, 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 it doesn't, uh, and while there is some, Eastern European fantasy, The Witcher being a, a prime example, um, it's it feels much more like, yeah, some amalgam of England, or should I just say the British Isles, um, France, or Germany. Um, there's definitely, and it's definitely a, you know, feudal or monarchical or, you know, imperial system of government. Um, it's never a... It's never a democracy. Um, occasionally, maybe it might be something like a theocracy, which also you would see in the Middle Ages in, in Western Europe. Um, it's pre-industrial or maybe just about to be industrial, but um, nobody's going to work in the factory. Everybody's working on farms or in mines or soldiering for the king. Um, yeah, I wanted to... to briefly making it like I, I found that I was thinking about this and I was realizing like a lot of it feels like a lot of fantasy I've read when I actually take a step back and look at it it's on that it's on the cusp of industrialization maybe or like once again like this sort of like faux very rushed industrialization that like a fantasy setting might give you as opposed to this very slow you know you could say people there's like three industrial revolutions that people talk about you know what I mean like there's mm -hmm. very different what you're talking about but like I mean, in some ways, like Lord of the Rings, in some way deals with, you know, I mean, you're going to talk more than I can, but sort of like that, like the fear of coming industrialization and like the destruction of nature and that sort of thing. Yes. Uh, I can think of like, um, well, First Law, is, you know, by Joe Abercrombie, which you talked about earlier, is there's sort of some things like, well, maybe we're getting close to some new things here. Uh, even like in like Wheel of Time, they're talking about like, oh, like, one of the plot points is, it's not really a plot point, it's like a side, just like kind of almost like a, a place to do this we're talking about is the main character sets up a like, I guess you just call it, like a, we would call it a think tank. And he's like, get, hires a bunch of like 
professors and researchers and just says like here's a bunch of money just go mess around with, with stuff <laughs> and they're describing this thing moving down the street and they're like oh it's like this moving cart that has like smoke coming out of it it's like oh it's a car like you're talking about a car <laughs> and like so like, i feel like a lot of things like they want to hint that like they know what's coming or it's right around the corner yeah well and i think that there's a and while we say medieval i think that really what we're seeing is it's all it, it, it is a selective amalgam of medieval and renaissance usually where it's still like everyone's still it's on the battlefield it's all very medieval it's all cavalry and swords and spears but then once you get back into the cities you know you've got these palaces with glass windows and carefully wrought golden thrones and you know streets paved with cobblestones and all of that and it's like well that's not quite medieval that's a little bit more approaching the renaissance and some authors mix these two things a little bit more liberally than others patrick rothfuss um <laughs> we're never quite sure you know where we're at um yeah and, and there's nothing to say that you know that has to be so broken down but sure. you kind of want to have an explanation of why it's different from us in some way even if it's just going to indirect you know for those unfamiliar i'll take a brief brief history lesson here so uh the easiest way to think about these time periods is that the middle ages essentially lasted more or less 1500 years so you had they call you know and even then no sorry about a thousand years i misspoke uh you know with people we say like the end of the roman period i'm not going to get into the big debate about that but roughly around 500 you know and that sort of kicks off what people call the early middle ages you know which is like 500 to between 800 and a thousand depending on who you ask also known as the dark ages uh then you have sort of like the high middle ages central middle ages which is like a thousand to maybe 1300 and then you have what people call the late middle ages which is about 1300 to 1500 and that's when it really starts to sort of fracture a little bit and you know some countries are kind of still in the middle ages but like places like england might be a little bit more what we could consider like renaissance reformation era right. pre if you we're know, talking about early modern for lack of a better term and 1500 you've got you know you've got spain sending christopher columbus west Right. You know, uh, so it's, and you're right, it does start to fragment and, you know, I'm sure there were some areas of, you know, central Germany that still were very, very medieval at the same time that Italy was, um, you know, becoming more advanced. But, um, so again, but it's, it's definitely pre-industrial, borrowing yes. a little bit from the Renaissance, borrowing a little bit from the Middle Ages. And like you say, like the, the Middle Ages is actually a pretty big span of time. Um, but, um, but another key factor, I think, in most fantasy is there is the specter of war. Either there is a big war on the horizon, or we just had a great war and um, there's a new king in town, or it's in the middle of the great war between the so-and-so and the such-and-such. -and -such. But it's rare that you see a fantasy book that is not set where war is not a big part of the context. Um where it's just, oh, this is just another week in this little town. Um, war is a big part of the general context. This is not a, it doesn't take place in a period of relative peace. Um, it takes place in a time of war or right after war, right before war. Um, and lastly, there is, there are various races and faction or factions. And when I say races, like it could be like 
fantasy races like dwarves and elves, or it could be more like our modern conception of races where we're just talking about different ethnic groups and cultures, but they're all still essentially human. Um, you know, that you might see more like in say game of Thrones or first law where, you know, it's not elves and dwarves. It's just, you know, maybe a little bit more like our, our modern conception, but the world is still divided up into pretty distinct groups. Um, and they are usually, um, they have pretty defined characteristics, you know, dwarves are greedy and industrious and elves are aloof and mysterious and humans are humans. Um, but they have these kind of clearly defined attributes and they're always kind of tussling with you with each other. So that's what I would define as the default fantasy context. I think that's pretty fair. Uh, you know, before someone, you know, goes, oh, but, but, but yeah. Clearly, this is not all fantasy, right? Right. There are many exceptions. Modern fantasy, there's a lot of exceptions. Like, you know, you get in sort of the urban fantasy area with, like, Neil Gaiman or China Miaview, whose book I just started. Um, you know, or even, like, a Harry Potter or Dresden Files. Uh, there's also maybe a little bit of a Venn diagram with, like, steampunk stuff going on in some of these. Um, you know, but even many of these, they take on aspects of the medieval fantasy, right? They, they're still borrowing on, we'll talk about later, like, a reliance on old mythic kind of things mythological ties i mean honestly i don't even really know why jk rowling put harry potter in the modern world because the vast majority of it does not take place there or have anything to do with it or integrate in any way whatsoever so i don't know why she just didn't make it about a wizard school but that probably even more work for her which she's not very good at so anyway uh there's also like tv has kind of avoided this area up until the recent you know ad or coming adaptations of classic fantasy works like game of thrones where basically because that shit's really expensive yes um you know but when yeah, you think I, of like a fantasy show on tv you might think of like a buffy or a supernatural or a i don't know in certain other fantasy show uh well so in the late 90s there was kind of a rash of these these really cheaply produced fantasy shows uh xena warrior That's princess true. being the um the kind of the biggest and most successful, but then there was Hercules with Kevin Sorbo and a couple Xena spinoffs and a lot of imitators that kind of came and went during that period. Um, a lot of Southern California masquerading as medieval Europe. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. There is a uh, computers and the modern economics of television have, have allowed for, you know, allowed for game of Thrones and, um, all of its imitators to come right and i think that you know so when we're discussing this we know that there's large any like there's other areas like magical realism and lots of other sort of like subgenres that don't do this but we're talking about the bread and butter vanilla you know the big canon classic fantasy stories you know you're talking your real time your game of thrones your you know a lot of sanderson stuff abercrombie stuff rothfuss stuff like all the big names are you know doing this in this area of fantasy, which is the majority of fantasy and all, and all the, you know, B and C tier authors that you, when you go into like, you ever walk in like a used bookstore and you go to the fantasy mm -hmm. section, you're just like, yeah. holy shit, there's a lot of fantasy books out there that I've never, ever heard of, uh, you know, which, um, you know, maybe that's what you could think of is like, if you're, if, a, if you're in a used bookstore and they had a pretty delineated section breakdown, you know, like some put together like fantasy and sci-fi, but like, if they just had a fantasy section, what would most of that look like? And you know yeah. what it looking like. <laughs> kind of like 
really cheesy covers from published by Tor pretty much meets the requirement. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, so that's what we're talking about here. So don't don't jump down our throats and say that, you know, blah, blah, blah makes a fantasy not there. However, I'll say that we're definitely eager to hear about some things that maybe fit in this genre, but disrupt some of these tropes and this yeah. trend. So, so what games, Greg? What, what games? Yeah. So I I think the first the first and most damning um, uh, hypothesis for why this is so common um, is actually well first I'm gonna get I'm gonna get this is gonna be hypothesis zero out of the way here um, this is the obvious and easy um, uh, dumb answer that is at the as at the tip of many people's tongues is that. It, it is the default setting because of economics, because uh, Lord of the Rings was very, very successful, and thus publishers sought out books that were much like it, that had similar settings. Authors said, if I want to get a book published, I should make it be like this, and this thing snowballs to the fact where this just becomes the genre because this was the most lucrative place to publish and to write. Um that may very well be true, and that is probably part of this, but that's also a very boring answer. So let's talk about answers that are a little bit more interesting and thought-provoking. And I think the first hypothesis is ethnocentrism. Yay, everyone's favorite. <laughs> so, you know, when thinking about this, I was trying to rack my brain for, like, what are some other books I know of that aren't set in this sort of, you know, typical medieval Europe setting, Western Europe, no less. You know, and I would say that in the current state of genre fiction economics, Western authors are a pretty dominant force. You know, there's signs of this expanding, um, but traditionally this has been the case. And, but the first thing I'll say is that, like, I'm a Westerner that only reads English and is subjected to marketing and advertising and the culture of the Western world. So perhaps there's whole traditions in, I don't know, like, do people in the Middle East like fantasy? If they do, do they read token? Do they have their own token? I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I do not know. So, I mean, I, I'd definitely be curious to learn about that. I'm sure that there's pockets here. But I still get the, the like, many things due to globalization. You know, the West sets the standard when it comes for pop culture. And so I think there's, there is something here. And I read a great article last week that I am going to hope I can dig back up and put in the show notes. But it was kind of criticizing the what is often the separation between genre fiction and literary fiction. And the idea is that, and what is, um, and this writer's critique was that the writers are taught show, don't tell. And the argument is that um, that relies on a shared cultural understanding with the reader, Right. Like that there's a lot of things that go unspoken that allow me to write things without a lot of description, without a lot of exposition, because they take place in a certain cultural context and with a certain cultural understanding where I don't need to bother to tell you how X, Y, Z works because you already know. And this writer's argument is that that is inherently exclusionary and somewhat they use the term colonialist because it kind of pushes down on on the readers like, oh, no, I just assume you know this because everybody knows this, when that might not be true. Um, so when you look at, say, these medieval settings, 
um, they get around a lot of exposition because they assume that you already know um, what a king is and how a king relates to a princess and what happens to someone when they marry the princess. They don't need to go and explain to you how all of this works. And they don't need to explain how a king is different from a peasant um, and how a knight is different than a serf because that stuff is just kind of goes without saying. And the book doesn't need to explain to you why it's it's why Aragorn just gets to be king because he's the right person's son, right? Because you already come into that knowing that that's how succession works. Um, and now it, it's safe to say that most cultures probably had a monarchical system in the past and had a you know patriarchal succession system in the past, but. This setting relies on a shared knowledge of kind of Western folklore and um, cultural context. Like, you know, if I'm writing a book and I have elves in my book, I really don't need to explain to you what an elf is, right? That's just taken as a given now because you grew up in a Western culture where elves are a part of the shared folklore. So assuming that now if I go and I translate that book in India and I just start talking about elves, well... Does someone there know what elves are? And isn't it a bit ethnocentrist of me to assume that elves are a given? So it's a lot of these, this kind of shorthand and, you know, assumptions that we make about our readers that makes this kind of genre fiction a little bit exclusionary and a little bit ethnocentric because it assumes a lot. Hmm. See, I, interesting. I thought you were going in complete opposite direction with that because I would think that, I don't want to get too far down this tangent because this could be a whole other topic, but that I would find literary fiction to be more exclusionary because literary uh, fiction relies very heavily on context, like cultural context and allusions and things like that, that like you would not get if you were not a, especially like, you know, that's why kids have a hard time reading things from the past in like literary fiction in school because well, if you weren't growing up in, you know, England in the 1920s, like you won't understand this, all these connections where genre fiction, if it's removed enough, which maybe that's the question here is like what what counts as removed enough is that. And since it is show not tell, like, sure, if you're if you're saying it's elves, well, well, but like pre Tolkien, no one really knew what elves were either. Like they weren't really a thing. I mean, they, elves come from Scandinavian folklore and weren't that super common in fantasy before right. which fantasy wasn't that common before that either. But you know, sort of like if you have to explain all your races and places and people and politics anyway, then you're almost being more inclusionary. So that that was exactly this writer's point was that okay. genre fiction um, in general, because it has to go through the exposition, is inherently more inclusive because we are all equally strangers when we come to the world that's being written for us. So it's almost it almost forces you um as the reader into the role of the minority of the other, because the author has to explain things to you that everyone else in the, in the fictional world already knows and understands. So this author's point was that that is the kind of the ethnocentrism of literary fiction. But I would argue that this kind of tropey standardized fantasy setting carries a lot of that with it because it, 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 assumes that you grew up, you know, hearing fairy tales about princesses and dwarves and evil wizards. And, you know, so it doesn't have to do as much explaining. Um, yeah. Right. And I also think that you also get into this weird thing where if our main characters and main setting is most frequently a sort of 
Western Europe analog of some kind, some type, uh, which is usually the case uh, in these big works. Unless, you know, there's some people who are like, when you really get out there, like, I think it's something like, I mean, it's still pretty similar, but if you can get pretty far into the weird territory in fantasy and really making something new, then you might avoid some of this stuff. But, uh, you know, we get the thing where like, I don't know, in Game of Thrones, Westeros itself is very interesting and developed, but like the other areas of the world, like, oh, like the Summer Isles, it's like, well, that's where the black people live. And it's like, well, that's not so nice. You know what I mean? Like, and like, they're all in the like, you know, like they just like, it gets very like, uh, caricature the further you go out from the center, yes. which like maybe to be fair is probably how at this time most people viewed the world, right? Like, you know, beyond the horizon, there'd be monsters, right? Like, right. That's sort of but, how people view the world. However, it still comes off icky you know in right. our context because if you never it's one thing to when you're telling things from your character's perspective to them to have a very low resolution image of you know cultures outside their own but then we need to see them have their expectations challenged right as opposed to um uh you know we uh, getting it from kind of the omniscient author of where it just seems like oh no that's just what it is they just you know their, their culture is one note. Um, and actually, you know, we mentioned China Miaville, and I've, I've brought up this point before, but The Scar, second book in the Bass Lake tri- trilogy, um, does a really excellent job. That's almost kind of the entire twist of the book is about um, our characters having their um, having their uh, having their assumptions about other cultures basically destroyed. So anyway. Cool. So you think that pretty much covers ethnocentrism as a, one explanation? Uh, yes, I think that basically, and I don't think it is like many issues of uh, ethnocentrism or um, you know ethnic suprem- supremacism in you know in the world. It, it's not conscious. You know, I don't think a lot of people set out to write high fantasy and say, "Ah, oh, yeah, this is I'm, I'm reaffirming the the you know the power, the supremacy of the European race." It's just that by relying on the well-worn tropes you know, you are reinforcing certain things as normal and as given, which may not necessarily be so. Correct. All right. So on to explanation two, and I, I term this literary and mythic traditions. Mm-hmm. So essentially the, the first point I want to make is that one of the key components of fantasy is magic, right? Otherwise yes. you're writing a alternate history, <laughs> right? A historical fiction or alternate history kind of thing. Um, so magic, you know, it's, it's inherent to the genre. And I think for most people, and I think this is one of those things that transcends, you know, transcends Western European folklore and tradition, is that magic equals old, right? Mm-hmm. So we equate magic with old stuff all the time. Uh, I had a cool story idea for those budding authors out there. <laughs> How about where magic is discovered as an entirely brand new thing in the modern world, as opposed to tie, you know, even even stories that are about magic in the modern world they have some sort of long legacy or, or you're rediscovering something from the past yeah. or digging up an ancient artifact what if it's like no we just discovered like a new force and it lets us to manipulate you might even call it like the force but no um <laughs> but like you know something we discovered brand new in the modern world with no history no ancient origins i don't know be interesting um so but anyway you know i think the original big fantasy authors they chose you know especially the 
you know, our our Lord and Savior Tolkien. So we always have to talk about him. He, I mean, it, it really is. He set he set this world up in a yeah, lot of ways. It's, it's a BC AD situation with Tolkien. Yeah. So I mean, he was a historian and a philologist. He studied Beowulf and the sagas, and so many ways he recreated what he knew. He knew about elves because they were part of Scandinavian folklore. Uh, and same, you know, same with dwarves, like, or and also maybe Anglo-Saxon folklore, you mm -hmm. know, and others like, you know, uh, Howard who wrote, you know, you know, and in, in also around this time who wrote, you know, the Conan stuff. And this is maybe, that might be an exception is like Conan's a little bit like pre, pre-European, I mean, it's still pseudo-European, I guess, but like there's a little, there's a very, definitely a very strong, like, I'm going to use this term purposely, like Orientalist approach yes. in some of his fiction. Yes. Um, but it's also like pre it's supposed to be very like almost like prehistoric in some ways, right? Like yes, you know, Crom and Samaria. Like these are all like not like knights in shining armor and castles. It's more like plains it's and like caves and you know Bronze Age stuff, right? Yeah. So, but even him, him, he looked to history for inspiration. Uh, so I think that that you know that that there's something about drawing on what feels like it's legendary, and there's an idea in something deep in, in our storytelling culture that positions the past as a place where things transcended the kind of everyday mundane events, right? Big things happened, happened, epic things happened. People went on adventures and there was magic in the world. And that's such an appealing idea. And I think I know where that comes from, where that's kind of rooted in our like, deep psyche like you know even deeper than like cultural stuff just human psyche is when you're told to imagine you're growing up and your your parents and your aunts and your uncles are telling you stories of things that happened to them in the past right they're going to tell you you're only going to hear the stories about the past that were interesting and exciting you know about that time your your dad hit a you know you know, hit a, hit a, hit a home run during the big game when he had the flu, you know, because nobody tells a story about the time they got their taxes done on time. Right. <laughs> Those aren't the stories that survive within the kind of just like the immediate human family context. So as you're growing up and you're hearing these things and you're also hearing fairy tales and stories that always take place a long, long time ago where, you know, and, and magic things happen, it just starts to make sense that cool stuff magic stuff, epic stuff. That's the way things used to be. We view the past and also just that's the way memory works, right? Mm -hmm. You, the only parts of your past, you know, thinking about like thinking way back to when you were a child, you're remembering things that were really, really exciting or really, really, you know, tr traumatic. It's the big stuff. So I think that's our view of the mythic past as well. It comes from that idea of that's when big stuff used to happen. So we're receptive to that kind of mythic, epic, legendary kind of storytelling. Um, so it's a natural kind of flow from like Arthurian legend, which is very attractive because it tickles all those things in us about the epic and magical nature of the past. Um, and it's a clear line from that to, okay, well, that's maybe Arthurian legend is like loosely historical. Um and kind of ingrained in the consciousness. So you've already got, you know, so when you want to go and you want to write your story, you know, you know, people are already familiar with magic swords and magic rings because they heard the Arthur legends and a wizard and, you know, a dragon. So that's some sh literary shortcuts you can take. 
Um, and you set it in a similar time and place back when all that stuff you know about Arthur was happening. Maybe this was happening too. Um, but yeah, I just think it's, it's the distant past is where magic happens. Magic doesn't happen in the present day anymore. Right. And obviously, you know, mythology is in many ways like the original fantasy, right? Like characters, human characters are interacting with, you know, gods and demigods and monsters and strange new places and people and, and all these staples of the fantasy genre. So I think it's natural there'd be sort of like a magnetic pull back to that sort of thing. You know, and I also, you know, you said fairy tales and folklore are also in that Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen, all those sort of things. As time goes on, they're still always sort of looking back and moving forward. Uh, you know, but I, I also want to bring up, I don't want to ignore like the religious sort of influence, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, Tolkien... And C.S. Lewis, two very important fantasy authors, some of the most important fantasy authors for the sort of the founding myth of this myth, uh, <laughs> is that, you know, they were very religious. And I think, once again, religion looks to the past to when when the magic happened, right? I mean, in their eyes, there'd be still some magic today, but not, not like the big magic. So I think that's also a role to play because, you know, well, one man's religion is another man's mythology. So, <laughs> so, well, and it's a little bit of chicken and egg, right? Is right. that is one of the reasons that, you know, those, you know, our religious mythology, again, most of the things happening in the distant past, um, does that take root with us because of that same kind of, cause it tickles the same part of our brain that is stimulated by the stories of King Arthur or the stories of, you know, the crazy hijinks, you know, your uncle got into when he was your age, you know, um, is it just that it tickles that same kind of sense of wonder and sense of being, you know, a child again? Um, so it, it, is it, or is it that the religious, you know, it's, it's training us to imagine the past as a more magical place. I don't know. I think that also you said sense of wonder, sense of, I think also like a sense of discovery, sort of what we were mm. talking about before. I mean, I, I know that, like, I mean, I feel like every kid goes through a phase where get, they get really into Greek mythology for like, par partially <laughs> it's because it's something they learn in school or like Egyptian mythology or Roman mythology, you know. It was Norse mythology for me. Right, you know, Norse depending, you know, it depends on some, you know, some schools kind of gear, there's a usually Greek mythology like section. Yeah. But, you know, I think every kid has that and like learning that world and how everything fits together was a lot of fun for me big surprise but i do think a lot of people who are drawn to the fantasy like they like that sense of like all right blank slate what do i gotta know like start from here and i think some people also don't like that like i think that that's one of the reasons that um shay you know my fiance she she's not really big into fantasy and sci-fi because she doesn't really like to have to relearn that stuff she likes hmm. the cultural contents i think and having to relearn having to learn what words mean and what they reference and what's this place again you know the closer it is to reality, as for either fantasy or sci-fi, the more she tends to like it. So I think there's definitely a divergence of like personality and taste there. Hmm. But I think that all the, I think people who write fantasy and people who like to read fantasy really are into that sense of discovery in the world building, which we'll get to more here after our break. Look at that segue. <laughs> now that I well ruined done. it, but. <laughs> <laughs> So even though I have not yet got around to watching episode three or four of Star Trek Discovery, it has been renewed for season two, which I think is great because it's more Star Trek. And I don't think the world gets worse when you put more Star Trek into it. Um, but this, I have a quote here from uh, the president 
of CBS Interactive, Marc Debevoix. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So this is a press release that they put out announcing that it had been picked up for a second season. Keep in mind that the first season is split. Um, They're doing, I think, like six episodes now and then seven episodes later, one of those kinds of things. Um, But anyway, here's the quote, which is, well, we'll talk about it. Quote, in just six episodes, Star Trek Discovery has driven subscriber growth, critical acclaim, and huge global fan interest for the first premium version of this great franchise. End quote. Now, I put a lot of asshole uh, (laughs) onto my reading of that, but like the first thing he says, and this is this is a press release. So this is all, you know, this is planned. This is not, you know, off the cuff um, has driven subscriber growth. Which, look, I know that was, you know, what you're trying to do here. That's why it's ex- exclusive to the streaming app is because you want people to pay for your streaming app. I get it. But, like, the first thing you're saying is, like, yeah, it's really made the the red line on the graph go up. It's just so fucking slimy. And then, um, you know, I mean, at least start that statement with, like, you know, Star Trek Discovery has proven to be a great hit with fans and critics alike people love this show we made a good thing we're making people happy we want to keep doing that no it's it's really driven subscriber growth and global fan interest and this oh god this is the thing that bums me out the most about this whole statement is the first premium version of this great franchise fuck you premium star trek what the fuck is that nonsense <laughs> like it's just so gross like, does that mean that, like, Next Generation is just like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's, like, free Star Trek. That's, like, entry level. You really want to get the premium Star Trek. You know, the one where they swear every once in a while. Just so fucking gross, man. Uh, I, I understand that this thing is a business, but please don't show me that it's a business. <laughs> like, uh, of all the ways to announce that you're coming back for a second season, this is just so fucking gross. And it makes me, I mean, it honestly makes me less interested in this show because it feels more like, oh, it's it's a, you know, this is a premium product that you're using to drive margin on your subscription. Oh, God. So that really bummed me out. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, oh, it is gross. I just, and it sounds like almost like faux business talk. You know what I mean? Like just like buzzwords and like what I might write on a report if I was like really stretched. And I was like, oh, well, this is definitely like, you know, uh, driven, you know, enrollment growth, you know, just like, just like stuff like that. It's like, you just got kind of string some words together. I mean, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. That's not, yeah. Like you said, we all know what these places are out to do, but like, let us, let us live in the fantasy world at least and think yeah. that you care about the art, right? You didn't have to say this, Marc de Beauvoir. You didn't have to say it this way. You could have said, everybody here at CBS is incredibly proud of the cast and crew of Star Trek Discovery for making a, you know, for, for, for reviving this franchise in a way that, you know, our fans and our sus- subscribers really really enjoy and we can't wait to see what they're going to do for season two done end of statement you don't need to talk about the fucking economics of it mark oh and like we Ugh. know we know that it, it was an economic success if you're doing more of it right. like that's, if that's it wasn't we know. you wouldn't do it <laughs> and it just uh. i mean and, and maybe that's a statement you make to your fucking shadowy ass shareholders whoever they are about you know what but don't tell me Ugh. not good not good so speaking of depressing elements of the of the business, uh, James Mangold, 
who wrote and directed the best X-Men movie and the best Wolverine movie and possibly the best superhero movie, Logan, is working on a script for an X-23 spinoff because, of course, he is. Um, but uh, please don't. <laughs> like, just don't do this. Don't do this thing. Logan is such a perfect movie. Don't don't make a spinoff. I don't need to see what happens to her. She goes to Canada, and it's probably kind of okay. That's all I need to know. I don't... Please don't do this. You know, if they could make it, like, not in the shadow of Logan, and maybe, like, even barely even connected, set, set it, like, 15 years later, and she's, like, you know, 25 or whatever, and doing her own thing, like, fine. Like, although, like... Or, or if you're, if just pull the, pull the WB DC route and be like, ah, screw the canon. Like we'll make an X-23 movie. And like, if you want to say it's kind of like a sequel, okay, but it's really just an X-23 movie. It doesn't really have to actually connect, but to make a direct sequel or something like that. Yeah. It doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit. Like that was such a nice, concise story. You can just, I know this is coming from me. So, uh, you know, like just let, just let it be. It's fine. There's other, other places for this to happen. Or just have a grown-up X-23, like, pop out of a time portal and help out the first-class X-Men or something. Like, right. If like, we have to do this. If you're already going to make it, if you're already making an X-Force movie, like, she's a really good X-Force character because she's essentially Wolverine, but a girl and awesome. And you're not going to have Wolverine in your X-Force movie, probably. So, yeah, just... Yeah. And, I don't know. Do something like you don't. Have to and make I'm already it. getting. I'm already getting way too confused with all of the different X Men properties that are going on right now between Legion and Gifted and New Mutants and the new X Men movie. I, I, I just please don't do this, guys. Although now I just want to go watch Logan again. <laughs> yeah, that does sound good. Uh, more comic book stuff. So last week we discussed how comic book media is going teen, but the other big trend that's really noticeable from some news this week and. <laughs> Did you like that? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, is that comic media is also going cosmic? And this isn't a new trend, but it's really getting, really hitting peak cosmic here. Because obviously we're getting Infinity War stretched mm-hmm. across two movies and whatever they're going to call the fourth one. I'm just like, they come out the title by now. Come on. Um, we're getting, you know, obviously we have the continued success and continued franchise of Guardians of the Galaxy. And from the sounds of it, uh, Thor Ragnarok is not only very cosmic, but also really good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so looking forward to that. But yeah, we're also getting, they announced that not only, we knew that Dark Phoenix, one of those other X-Men movies we just discussed, <laughs> is going to have the Shi'ar in it, which is fine, because that's, I guess, somewhat tied to the Phoenix storyline. But now we're, they're also saying that there's probably going to be scrolls in it. Yeah, so this is interesting. So the scrolls are a shape-shifting batch of aliens in the marvel cosmic universe uh they look like thanos but they're green (laughs) true and have pointy ears instead of little round ears like thanos does but the interesting thing about this is because we know that the scrolls are also going to be in the mainstream marvel continuity especially captain marvel which i think is going to be about the kree scroll war the kree you'll remember um Ronan the Accuser in the first Guardians of the Galaxy was a Kree, and they fight the Skrulls. And so the way this was explained in the article I read is that while Marvel Studios owns the Skrulls as a, like, race or as a larger property, Fox owns the rights to certain individual Skrulls. 
the I'm only sure they're one referring to Super Scroll. Yeah, but. Super Scroll. Uh, who, for those of you who don't know, is basically a guy who had all the original X Men's powers. Uh, wasn't it the Fantastic Four's powers? You're right. I lied. Fantastic Four power. But I think there was another version later that of also had. No, that was that other. It was a mutant who had that. That's my mistake. I get my book out and look it up. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, you are correct. It was Fantastic Four power. But yeah, and like scrolls aren't typically like X Men villains, but uh, I don't know. Uh, we also have, so we, like you said, scrolls are going to be the main villains, you know, set piece in Captain Marvel. And also Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is this in a season that's starting in December oh, is, right. is going to be basically in, in I don't know if it's going to be entirely in space, but it definitely starts off like they're in space. So and they've done a lot with Kree's like Kree have been a pretty big component, not not big, but like semi big component because because of their relationship to Inhumans. Uh, they have had a lot of connections there. So, plus, I guess there was there is that Inhuman show that's still on and has connections to the Kree. But we're gonna ignore that for now. Yeah, just Un- like the rest of America. Until I sit down and watch all of it when it's done, and maybe I'll do like a immediate. We can do like an immediate post watch episode, and I'll just be like in a depressed mood or something. I don't know. But I, yeah, I think so- you can do a solo post watch on Inhumans. I'm not sitting through that. No, no. I mean, I'll do it, and then you can just. <laughs> all right. All right. Good. share my misery but uh but so my question greg is is what do you think of all this like what what do they do to like get all this cosmic stuff right i think they're doing it right so far i mean i think that guardians is getting it pretty right and dr strange got its cosmic trippy dippy stuff pretty right maybe the only thing it got right <laughs> um and from what i've seen from thor ragnarok they're getting that super duper right as well. I think that they have found that these cosmic settings give them kind of liberate them from a lot of the superhero movie tropes that they kind of get stuck into. It's like, well, it's, I mean, it takes place on earth, so it has to be a city. And how do we destroy a city? Well, I guess we open up a hole in the sky and shoot some lasers down on it, or maybe lift the city into the sky, but it it just, it's kind of like, but when you move it and you take have it take place in outer space, you can really change, you know, or exotic planets, you can really change up the set pieces and show us some new stuff rather than, you know, well, they almost destroyed New York again. Uh, so I, I, I love it. I think it is, again, looking at, you know, the last two Guardians movies, the better parts of Doctor Strange plus what, you know, what looks to be happening in Thor, like this seems to be curing the fatigue of the kind of, you know, Avengers movie uh, endless recursion that we've had going on. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm curious to see what the other areas, like what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. does, what, uh, like how Fox handles their foray into the cosmic with X-Men. I assume they'll bungle it because that's kind of what Fox (laughs) tends to do with these movies. Um, But we'll see. So, but yeah, so. And then inevitably we'll soon we'll get the cosmic teen superhero movie. Stop saying the word teen. <laughs> Why? I don't like it. I don't like it. Okay, that's fair. All right, All right let's get back to uh, let's get back to talking about our f- fantasy topic. So explanation three to review. Explanation one was. Were ethnocentric racists. <laughs> Two was literary mythic traditions. Round of three, which is what I titled, eh, it's kind of general, but story and plot concerns. 
So sort of like the practical concerns of the stories that people want to tell that might drive towards this time period. Uh, the big one, since we talked about how war and conflict is a major part of these stories, as it is of most genre fiction, which is maybe a whole nother topic someday, is that guns kind of ruin the fun. <laughs> as they are wont to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple things here. So personally, I don't think that gun combat reads quite so dramatically on the page. Like, oh, I shot a guy. Okay. <laughs> There's only so many ways you can write that I shot a guy. Um, as opposed to, you know, in-depth sword fights and interesting troop placements of, like, cavalry and archers and all kinds of fun stuff like that. You know, and, and most conflicts in a fantasy story are solved at the point of an arrow or a sword or a fireball. And even though that sometimes it can, not saying that the war isn't as destructive or as violent, because I've seen many people turn to mush via magic in these stories, or just by steel and zombies i guess <laughs> uh but i just feel like that's a it's a it's a it's a topic to avoid for these people because it just changes how you have to write your stories i think from a purely like practical concern yeah there's something and i think abercrombie's great at this about the the up close and personal nature of the hand-to-hand combat and um that it might be a little bit more of an interesting read on the page and you just, I feel like you relate more to your hero if they like, if they overcome the villain in a, in a dramatic sword fight where they're clashing steel and, you know, getting grinding teeth in each other's faces versus like, you know, well, I, I flanked him and got a good angle and then I shot him. <laughs> it's, it's not as, I, I don't know that it's necessarily as dramatic or fits in with the epic, legendary, mythic nature of, of fantasy. Yeah. And there's things that we talked about gosh, way long ago, almost a year ago, we are talking about sort of like the nature of magic in fantasy and how, you know, why would you want guns if you can just shoot fireballs, right? And like, it would be weird to see those two things alongside each other, I feel like. Even like, you know, sci-fi that's more in the space fantasy genre, you know, you still like, yeah, I guess Jedi can shoot force lightning sometimes maybe, but like <laughs> they can't just throw fireballs at a whim, you know, they still need guns and weapons and things. So... Um, and I think it also sets up for when the crazy fantasy shit happens, it makes it more compelling. You know, when when Saruman's forces destroy the gate at Helm's Deep using gunpowder, presumably. Um, I don't know. Is it gunpowder? I assume it's gunpowder. Yeah, close okay. enough. Um, I wasn't sure there's some weird token thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, that that's like, holy shit. Like, what just happened? Like, that doesn't that's not supposed to exist, right? Yeah. Or there's a scene in Wheel of Time where, um, so I've explained this before, but the, the men in Wheel of Time are not supposed to, they can, they can be, some men can be magical. They've got the touch, you know, got the power. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is it, it corrupts them, like slowly makes them go insane. But the main character who is magical says, ah, screw it, I'll just make a men's group. And he, he sets, puts this guy in charge of it who's kind of like one of those guys, it's like, you know this is going to end poorly, but he's the best guy to do it at the time. And basically, at some point, there's this big battle going on. And up until this point, we've seen some magic, you know, we've seen some one-off little fireballs and things. But, like, basically, 20 of these guys show up and instantly kill 40,000 of the bad guys just via all kinds of nasty stuff. And it's like, oh, oh, gosh, this book's just turned a little bit, you know, like, it's like <laughs> a, it's a point that you want to have happen where uh, potentially something like something really crazy happens that guns 
a machine gun can kill a thousand people if it's not right. you know d- deterred so I, don't know, I think just pull something out of it for what we're looking for or the the arrival of the dragon in game of thrones when you right. actually see the dragon on the battlefield and you realize oh the game done changed uh yeah i think it, it sets you up to to have those moments um and i think that there's something about the journey we've talked about before the prevalence of the long journey in all of fantasy <laughs> uh that storytelling trope of and when you have to make that journey on foot or by horseback, the journey takes a long time. So there's a lot of time to like see cool things and encounter a witch on the road or, um, you know, have lots of conversations about the plot and philosophy as you go. And that is kind of, and maybe that's from Tolkien um, because that's such a, you know, kind of travel log type type book. And, you know, that, that became the method, but you know, if you can hop on a train that changes things a little bit. I will say that I think it's possible to mix fantasy with more modern modes of transportation. And my example for this is a weird one, but I played uh, maybe a quarter of Final Fantasy 15. And so that is a world that's all kinds of magic. And the Final Fantasy series have always kind of blended their magic and technology in ways that are only just make sense. <laughs> um, they make sense if you squint at them enough. But a big part of that game is you driving around with your three friends in a car. And it's a road trip. And you actually, like, you play and you're driving the car and listening to music and just, like, joking around with your buddies. And then you jump out of the car and, like, get into fantasy sword fights with, like, giant talking trees. Um, and it does a good job of blending that because I think it, you can still have long journeys by car and, you know, I mean the great, you know, one of the great classics of American literature on the road is about just some jerks driving around. So I think it can be done, but I think you're right. There is something about, you know, the long, slow journey that gives you time to stumble over, you know, you just happen to be walking along this road and stumbled across the fallen tree that had the secret sword hidden inside of it. Um, They don't quite get if you're just, you know, kind of cruising at 65. Yeah. And we talked about in the map episode about, you know, how a lot of series end up developing fast travel anyway, right? Like as I mentioned, wheel time is another example of like, they literally can just open portals to wherever they want (laughs) by like halfway through the series. So it's even faster than planes and things. But by that point, you've already had the journeys. So you've already built, you know, like you've already checked that box, right? So now you don't want to have, you don't want to have only journeys because that gets trite. It's like, well, we've walked across the world and back four times. Like no one really wants to watch that. Or just anything in Game of Thrones, like, or even Song of Ice Fire. Like you start having the travel occur off screen when it starts to become boring. Yeah. Um, Something, a lesson learned from Tolkien, you know, not to just have the whole book be travel. Uh, So I think another really important point here that, goes back to sort of our, our talking about political setting is that setting it in a, you know, pseudo feudal monarchical setting of some kind, not only is it more romantic because it appeals to that, like the Arthurian, you know, nature, you know, all these uh, warring kingdoms and these sort of things, but also it, it makes for a more, uh, an easier story, a streamlined story, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, we defeated the bad guy. Like now the good guy's in charge. Cool. As opposed to like, well, actually, the shadow government, you know, like there's like, it, you're like, are well, you know, we de- we depose the president, but like Congress really isn't getting anything done. Like those are hard things to like tackle in a fit. Like now, this thing can be done. I, I would be very interested to see it. 
But I feel like even like the urban fantasy books that I've read don't really even touch on all that. The com- the complexities of real politics or even like not even real politics, but even like faux modern politics, I'd be okay with. But I think that's another piece of the puzzle. Yeah, there is a and not having there and having having it set in such a remote way that there's there's no connection to the modern and current world uh and having a very simplistic view makes does make it easier to tell your kind of idealized view you know idealized view of the world you know and again it takes you back to a childhood sense of good and evil right wrong um you know happy ending sad ending uh thing that you know that again tickles the right part of the brain yeah i also think there's some other practical concerns i think i think world building is more fun without globalization right because you can make these really different and interesting societies and they haven't they don't interact much because they're far away or they're across an ocean and that really lets you stretch your chops which a lot of you know Tolkien once again like he essentially didn't really I mean I didn't say he didn't care about the story but like he really wanted to develop worlds and write languages and mm-hmm. like make these things it was it was a is a point in writing it so I think a lot of people fall in line with that um and I also think similar to that is that it's harder to combine a modern world and fantasy in a way that makes sense aka see Harry Potter or most fantasy series that take place in our world in a modern world. I have, I don't know of any fantasy series that, well, I guess there's probably some, but that take place in like an alternate modern world. But most of the urban fiction that I'm aware of, outside of one exception um, that I can think of off the top of my head, it, is that like, like Harry Potter, Dresden Files, you know, TV shows, like they sit in the our world and then shove magic into it, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. And the seams are very obvious. Right. Because you always run into that problem of, you know, Harry Potter starts out and the world is vaguely aware that wizards are real. It's almost like a secret that adults kind of keep maybe, but the wizards don't seem to have like a big impact on the world, but these are, they have magical powers and all they, but all they really do is just like play Quidditch. What's going on? Um, so it's that, how do you have your mad, your, your, when you try to imagine the current world, how our world would be different if magic were real, you can't just lay magic on top of, unless to use your idea, we discovered it tomorrow, lay magic on top of the current world and have it make sense. And also, I think we talked about a million years ago, back in our kind of defining genres episode, we talked about that there is, in order for it really to be fantasy, it really needs to take place in a secondary world to our own and harry potter yes it quote unquote takes place in our world but he also basically goes through a magical door at into the magical train station to go to the magical world that kind of exists superimposed over our own um and even if you look at some of neil gaiman's uh i'm thinking of neverwhere specifically um his kind of urban fantasy it takes place in a literal underworld of fantasy that lives beneath the London that we know. And there is always a passing of some kind of threshold, you know, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe ostensibly takes place in the, in the real world, but they pass through the wardrobe into Narnia. Uh, So, yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons that you just, you can't just kind of insert some fantasy elements into the modern world because in order for it to really be fantasy, it has to, it has to be another world. Yeah, because it and you can, and I think that's another reason why you people tend to set stuff in the past is because 
it requires less work for extrapolation, which we talked about multiple times, right? Like you don't need to go quite as far into the future because the point of divergence is not as far, right? And it's and it's set in the past, but it's not set in our past, right? Generally, so you can you can in, you can fudge it a little. It's set in the past of some other world, um, you know, with the exception of like the Arthurian fantasy, it takes place in some version of England. You know, it takes place in England. Uh, you know, Middle Earth is not, even though it looks a lot like, <laughs> it looks a lot like, you know, the British countryside. It's it's not, it's not really England. It's not our past. It's someone else's past. Right. So I think that there's like, you know, that's kind of like a catch-all category there of like different kind of practical reasons that it makes sense and makes life a little easier and maybe mm -hmm. makes um, draws in that way. So I think we're ready to move on to my fourth and final explanation, which is a smaller category, <laughs> but... Still something I wanted to bring up and get your opinion on. I think that for modern writers, and this is sort of a chicken or the egg thing, because you could say that one begot one and begets the other, and maybe maybe it more continues the cycle of this trend as opposed to like moves it. But uh, I think that role-playing games have had a major effect on modern fantasy writers. All the big fantasy writers we talk about talk about playing role-playing games, and most... I won't say most role-playing games take place in a medieval fantasy world. However, the big one, Dungeons and Dragons, mm -hmm. does. Yes. Uh, and I think that, you know, to the point where in an extreme situation, like Mal, you've heard of Malazan, Book of the Fallen. Uh, this Another sort of makes that list of Wheel of Time, Game of Thrones, all these books um, by Steven Erickson, literally just his D&D campaigns, <laughs> from my understanding. Uh, so with, you know, with some... I assume some hammering out, although I hear maybe not quite as much as it needed. Um, <laughs> but I think that there, I think that Dungeons and Dragons has had an effect on modern fantasy writers. I think so. I mean, I think it, it clearly, you know, the reason that Gygax and co decided to build that as their setting, um, because I think that they were all very big fans of Tolkien. And I think there is a, and one of the reasons it was successful was because it took place in a world where, you know, that required didn't require a lot of exposition from the players, right? I know what a magic sword is. I know what elves and dwarves and goblins are because I read Tolkien, so we don't need to go into too much detail about that. Let's just get down to playing. As opposed to other games that, you know, might require their fantasy world to be built out a little bit more, like like the White Wolf games, like Vampire and Werewolf, where like, all right, I need to sit down and establish all of my rules for vampires. I know you know a little bit about vampires, but we need to make clear what our vampires are and what our werewolves are and all of that, whereas, you know, most people can dive right in to a fantasy setting because it's that, it's that cultural shorthand that we have. And should I should say to cycle back to our first point most western people should be able to dive right into one of these settings because um you know if if if, if you're the dm and you say you turn you turn the corner and there's three goblins in front of you i don't need to say wait hold on a second what the fuck's a goblin right like i don't need to do that in the same way that um you know maybe someone who you know a recent immigrant from japan might might need right. to have explained what a goblin is and you might say well it's kind of like a kappa but they live in mountains not swamps and you know um it's that it's that shared cultural shorthand no that's a good point i think it shows sort of like so two points here like to circle back to my point about talking about how people who don't really enjoy the discovery uh and they don't have that cultural shorthand what i 
you know, pretty much forced Shay to play Dungeons and Dragons with us in college once or twice. <laughs> um, she hated it because like, not only do I have to learn this whole game, which is already complex and annoying and you guys are really good at it or know a lot about it, I should say. Uh, <laughs> she's like, I don't know what any of these things are. I don't know what a dwarf is. I don't know what an elf is. I don't know what a goblin is. So just as you're describing, like, it's an extra layer of like, well, I can't even operate on the same plane of understanding right now. Similarly, I think what's interesting, maybe not similarly, but another sort of this sort of ebb and flow of what influences what. So I always think that the way different media successes influence other things uh, is very interesting in this realm. And I think, you know, obviously, like you said, like the guys who made Dungeons and Dragons, like Varian Fantasy and Tolkien and all that. And then like now it's the reverse. Like, I mean, I'm sure modern fantasy writers are still in Tolkien and stuff, but they also really like Dungeons and Dragons and incorporate some of those elements into it, maybe more rules-based magic systems and those kind of things. Uh, but when big cultural events happen, they shift our understanding and our perception, those common cultural things. So example, uh, in most versions of Dungeons and Dragons, elves are short, mm -hmm. short and, and agile, right? Uh, not as short as gnomes and halflings, of course, but of course. Um, oh, I've got another example. I was um, I was at work last week, and we were talking about I was talking about the movie Bright, which you know the Will Smith movie mm -hmm, coming out, mm -hmm. describing it to people at my lunch table, and I was talking to my coworker, and I said, "Yeah, it's like it's kind of like Bad Boys, but like his partner's an orc," and he was just like, "A what?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, you know, like an orc, like from Lord of like the bad guys in Lord of the Rings," and he was just like, "I I maybe watched one of those." I'm like, "An orc, like." <laughs> You know, like, like oh, a big that... goblin. Yeah, and they're like, oh, you know, and I was like, uh, duh, a corrupted elf. Like, thank God, big laugh. But like, that point of, like you said, like not understanding it. So for elves, for D&D, &D, after the Lord of the Rings movies come out, all the systems change for elves to be tall. Huh. Because in people's mind, all the elves in Lord of the Rings were tall. Yeah, tall, tall and fair. With, you know, fair creatures, as opposed to kind of short, more woodland elf types kind of creatures. Yeah. Huh. Uh, so... Now that's the case, like D&D, Pathfinder, Elves are tall. Huh. So it's interesting how there's this back and forth between some of these different areas of media that influence one another based on success. Yeah. Uh, to our even earlier point about what people expect and look for and then what publishers expect and look for. So we've explained all this game coming close in the end. What's what's bad about this in your eyes? Well, I think that, you know, you know, I think the, the most insidious thing that I think we need to be aware of is we want, I think we want, obviously we want to create a more inclusive world and relying too much on a Western cultural um, understanding um, can become exclusionary and normalizing in a way that limits the scope of the kinds of people who can, who can find joy and inspiration in these works. So, the more we rely on the cultural shorthand of Western fantasy, the, you know, the more limited and insular it becomes. And it, then it disadvantages other fantasy writers who might want to, you know, who might want to take something that is set in a, in the, in the way that, you know, a lot of fantasy is set in a fictionalized medieval Europe. What about one that is set in a fictionalized, uh, you know, 1200s Africa? Uh, pre-colonial Africa. They have to do a lot more work bringing their readers up to speed than someone who sets it in, in a Western uh, setting. And that puts them at a disadvantage. And I think that, you know, 
I'm not saying that people should reorient their art towards, you know, what, you know, where the blind spots in our culture are necessarily, but it's, it's definitely something we should be aware of as we're creating new works of fantasy in that, you know, what does this assume about the reader? And is that an assumption we want going in? So that's the big one to me. Um, and I also think that, come on, we can, we can do better. Like we can, like, let's, let's stretch a little bit. And even just, you know, I, I talk about gentlemen bastards a lot, but just stretching it to set like, you know what, instead of Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, it's going to be more like Italy and a little bit more towards the Renaissance period. Um, and we're going to run with that setting and see where that takes us. And it takes it in some interesting directions and adds a lot of great texture. Um, and I think the more we can break out of this mold, the better. That said, I think that because there are so many ingrained expectations and that ingrained cultural context of this kind of standard setting, that gives clever authors a lot to play with and subvert our expectations. Like without this shared setting, you don't get Game of Thrones, which deconstructs it and teaches us things about patriarchy and about um, the flaws of feudal and monarchical society um, because it knows these are the things you expect to see and these are the things you expect to happen. Um, ditto for uh, Joe Abercrombie and even outside of the fantasy genre, you and I talked about and a lot of other people have have written and talked about like how great the twist in Blade Runner is, Blade Runner 2049, when you realize that, though this is not the chosen one narrative that you thought it was. Because you're, we've we've seen so many chosen one stories about you'd uncover your secret heritage, and it turns out you're the key to all of this. And that movie sets that up for the first half of the movie, and then it's like, oh no 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 no, you idiot, you're not that important. Uh, it does a great job of that, and that's because we we've been programmed to expect certain things. And I think if authors who can take this and use it can do some really great things, so I think it's good in that respect. Yeah, I agree. I think there's room, you know, there's room in this, there's room for everything when it comes to art, right? I mean, not everything, but most things, um, you know, and there's more than enough room in this genre and especially a genre that's increasing in popularity, I'd say. Yeah. And, and widespread acceptance that there's room for this. And hopefully because of that, we will get more diverse stories uh, because it does limit the number of stories you can tell. I mean, one thing that I want to point out is an area, two areas of like exploration for budding authors besides my other pitch earlier. Um, I do want to do a pitch episode, by the way, just like just <laughs> shout out pitches. Um, although if any of you get published, we get them monies. Uh, anyway, not, so that is not how that works. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, but I think like uh, an area where, so like obviously a game of Thrones is very political, but it's very political in sort of the way we understand. And it does show the complexities in like realistic, I mean, not realistic, but, uh, pseudo realistic complexities of like, a, a feudal, feudal monarchic system, but like there's other political systems that have their own sets of stories to be told that could be interesting in a fantasy setting. And I mean, no one wants Harry Potter and the Adventures of C-SPAN, but mm. I mean, Greg probably does because weirdo, but like we could use more complexity in that realm, I think, not just like good guy, bad guy, or, you know, puppet masters behind the scenes, like manipulating everything. Like you could use more like so, like broad social things and broad political things that aren't just attributed to in single individuals. Although we've discussed in the past how that's tough in a story sometimes. Uh, I also say that, you know, we've discussed in past episodes, build that magic and, and extrapolate, you know, Sanderson's doing it a lot, but see how your world would change 
why would it be different than a typical pseudo medieval feudal Western Europe? You know, because if people could shoot fireballs at our fingers, maybe things would be different, right? <laughs> so go those different directions, I think. And there's there's lots to be told as well as obviously uh, the diverse areas. And, and hopefully, you know, we hear that there's, I think one problem I kind of forgot about some of the, the Western centrism is because unfortunately for much of the world, especially, I mean, this is a generalization, but there's definitely areas of the world that still had these periods most suitably probably the Middle East and, and Asia, but for a place like Africa or South America, Mesoamerica, Europeans sort of ruined the medieval period for the rest of them. Like they didn't really, <laughs> you know, because of where they were in their cult, you know, their civilization's development, they didn't really get a chance to have like a glorious medieval period that, that was written about. Right. So we don't, you know, we unfortunately don't know as much about those, the beginnings of those time periods that we do, you know, their literature hasn't been, all these things happened because we came in and turned them into slaves. Right. And I think there's there could be a lot of very interesting fantasy written um, that is set in a colonial period, but from the perspective of the colonized, not the colonizers, because a lot of, you know, a lot of military fantasy especially involves empires and frontiers and all of that. But it's usually the central character is a part of the empire and then realizes the empire is evil. Um, but to actually it is the it is the subjugated people who um, who are having their culture eradicated. Like that could be very interesting and having like their magic suppressed because um, it poses a threat to the, col the colonizers. Um, it sounds just, like that might be the story of that. I forget the name of it now. The one that George R. R. Martin's helping to produce that's Caribbean turned into an HBO series. It's set in like a colonial Africa and the Africans possess some sort of magic. You're right, and I'm forgetting that I'm blanking on the name as well. But, yeah, I mean, I think there's there are, you know, dealing with colonialism, uh, post-colonialism, that can be very interesting. Um, and I think there's a lot of inter interesting stories to tell around industrialization. Um, I think that at some point when I get back into the Mistborn series, I think that's kind of the next step in his arc. Um, and you're reading... Perdido Street Station right now, and this is not a spoiler, but there is a mayoral election and a union revolt in that story. So it's a kind of, you know, again, to start to tell some stories within a fantasy setting that aren't just about getting the right king onto the throne, but like, you know, all right, so this is a democracy. How does that work? And how does how does democracy work when some of the citizens are literal living cactus people and some of them have human bodies but beetle heads and <laughs> some of them are water elementals and some of them are plain old boring humans and now that's a democracy you have to make work in a city um, where and this is one of my favorite parts of this book I can't wait till you get there it's just a little aside but uh, there's actually a embassy of hell. Hell has an embassy in, in New Chromazon, and it's just fantastic stuff. And like, you know, all right, so how do when democracy is hard enough when we're all humans but just have different skin colors? Um, <laughs> like, how does democracy work when you literally have different, you know, different races, different species trying to, um, you know, trying to live together in, in peace? I agree. So shall we go on to some recommendations? Let's talk about recommendations. So I have two, and both have been recommended before, but I wanted to recommend them in this context. So the first is sort of a classic that falls in this vein, referenced it a lot in this, but I think I want to recommend it because 
is an example of a story that draws a lot from this, but also subverts some of it because Wheel of Time, Robert Jordan, uh, one of the things he's praised for is his world building because there's one or two places. There's a lot of little countries or, you know, kind of pseudo ethnic groups in his story uh, that, you know, kind of through the course that we end up visiting most of them. And they, they pull a lot from not just Western European culture. So it helps to kind of break that monotony of just like, this is the analog for France. This is the analog <laughs> for Germany. Or, you know, this is the analog for House Tudor. Like, it, you know, it really helps to, mm -hmm. to make things a little different. And he's really into like describing fashion and food Ooh. and like how people do their hair. And like, you can see like, it's, it's not so original that it's like, you have no idea where they come from. Like, oh, he's talking about like Vietnamese food. I get it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I mm -hmm. he, but it's like, Vietnamese food with guys who dress like Frenchmen in like the 1700s, you know, like it's like, it's like a weird combination of all these things that make it a little more unique. Um, and it's also just a classic. So, uh, Greg will finish it by the time he's dead. <laughs> the second thing I want to, rec uh, to recommend is you took my thunder is, is Mistborn era uh, too, because rats. this helps to doesn't fall into this category and it's, I guess it would fall in the urban fantasy, but, and it deals with industrialization and it deals with a different governmental structure. There's a vigilante justice, which is interesting as well. Hmm. Um, but it really helps to break this because you get to see, I think, how the extrapolation effect works, how you can tell interesting fantasy stories in a setting that has trains and beginnings of cars and steel buildings and guns and, you know, how that how you can work around some of those practical issues we discussed in explanation three to make for still very compelling and still very sometimes i think that urban fantasy gets into the more like maybe a little more in the action adventure or also the other direction mm. maybe a little bit more in like the surreal i would kind of say something <laughs> like yeah keep reading pretty to street station <laughs> yeah like I get, the, I get the feeling that like game in and and maybe you're a little more in the surreal weird side but this is still very grounded you know it's, you know action adventure story but i think it's still lays into that fantasy stuff in a way that other urban fantasy doesn't quite do. Mm -hmm. So maybe the bridge, if you could call it that. So my recommendation, again, this is also something I feel like I've recommended before, but we've been doing this for like a year now. So we're going we're gonna to repeat, repeat ourselves. Um, it is the first book. Well, really the whole series, the, um, uh, the book of the new sun series by Gene Wolfe. The first book is the shadow of the torturer. And I was talking before about how a seemingly generic fantasy setting can give a clever author a lot of ways to trick you and play little games with you and uh, subvert your expectations. And that's really what this series does. Um, and it slowly does that over the course of uh, several books. But um, it plays a lot of really fun games with the setting and what you expect of how a fantasy world is supposed to work. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that, but I, I recommend them. They're, uh, they're a pretty quick read. They're kind of, they're pretty pulpy. So they're a, a good fun uh, read and um, problematic at parts. But then again, they were, you know, published in the eighties. Um, and when you look at the covers of these things, they have that like tour dime store novel look to some of the cover art, uh, which don't let that fool you. These are a good read. And, um, you know, subvert the genre in some really interesting ways. Excellent. 
All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us this week, huh? It does indeed. Yeah. We'll be rolling out the next few weeks. We got holidays coming. We got good movies coming out. We got a lot. We got a lot well, to do. We've got Thor and Star Wars, and we have Justice League. <laughs> That's true. I, I was not including Justice League. I'm also <laughs> hoping that Disaster Artist is uh, good as well. But, yeah. So, but yeah, we got a lot coming. So, stick around. <laughs>